Um, over Christmas, I, I watched the film the, the Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill. I'd wanted to watch it for a while and hadn't got around to it, but um, I had a chance to see that, and it, it filled in what I think could be described as a few gaps in my knowledge of history, which was, uh, which was good. Uh, and one of the key things it kind of focused in on, one of the big kind of themes of it, was the, the Dunkirk evacuation of 1940. Over a third of a million uh, Allied soldiers rescued from the, the beaches of France. Uh, incredible event. There's another film um, about it last year Christopher Nolan made, as imaginatively titled Dunkirk, uh, that you might, have, you might have seen that. Um, but this incredible event, this incredible rescue that, that changed the course, right from the beginning, changed the, the, kind of the course uh, of the Second World War, uh, and probably, it would be fair to say, changed the course of history. Uh, and it's this, it's this rescue which, because of that significance, uh, it's still spoken about, it's still remembered in books, uh, it's still uh, put down in great films like this, because it was an incredible event, and it's an event to be remembered. And this morning, uh, we're looking at an incredible rescue again, but even further back in history, another history-defining moment. Uh, and another rescue uh, which is to be remembered. Uh, and that's the Passover, uh, this event that we've kind of read about where God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. It's kind of the, the high point of the book of Exodus so far as we've been working our way through. It's this rescue that right from the beginning, God has promised. And it's happened just as God has promised it. Uh, and it's a rescue to be remembered. Uh, and so those are the two kind of uh, headings, headlines, I suppose, when I look at this under this morning, the, the idea of rescue and the idea of remembering. And we're going to do that uh, working our way through chapters 11 and 12, so it'll be worth having those open in front of you uh, if you have your Bibles. Um, so number one, uh, a rescue. Uh, this is the, re the, the result of, of this kind of tenth and greatest plague is, as we've just read, as we've just said, that the Israelites are, are finally freed from Egypt. Uh, they're, they're, they don't have to kind of sneak out. They're actually kind of sent out with, with kind of gold and, and gifts from the people. They're sent out of slavery. It's this God's great victory over Pharaoh, over Egypt. It is this great uh, rescue that is kind of right at the heart of the book of Exodus. Let me give you a, a quick recap. You might remember last week uh, we looked at this kind of battle uh, really a pretty one-sided contest that we saw between God and Pharaoh in the first nine plagues. I remember these, this word plagues could be uh, described as, as blows or, or strikes. Uh, three rounds of three blows which brought Egypt to its knees, which as God himself said were, were acts of judgment. Judgment on Egypt, judgment on Pharaoh who'd enslaved God's people. Uh, and this tenth plague, uh, this final strike, uh, really this, this knockout blow, uh, is clearly uh, the most severe yet. Uh, we just heard as it was read, it, it affects everyone from Pharaoh at the very top to the, the servant girl at the very bottom, even the, the livestock out in the field. It is the death of the firstborn son. Uh, chapter 12, verse 30, there was not a house where someone was not dead. And as we begin this, I, I want us to start... Uh, perhaps that makes you think, you know, this is awful. And this is kind of barbaric. You know, how could God do something like that? 
And before we kind of dive in and look in a bit more, more detail, I want to remember again, we, we talked about this last week, this idea of judgment, certainly such a strong judgment, it, it can make us feel kind of uncomfortable. But remember what we said last week, that actually for justice to be done, there needs to be judgment on wickedness. Uh, let me again take you back to uh, Exodus chapter 4, where God says this to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so this is shocking. And yet, right from the off, we see that this has been a battle for God's firstborn son. It's been a battle for the, the people of Israel, those who've been enslaved for generations, those who'd had their sons drowned in the Nile, uh, those who God had promised such good things for, and yet who Pharaoh had oppressed and persecuted. And right from the off there, we see in those verses in, in chapter 4, and we've seen it countless times last week, that, that God has told Pharaoh what is required to avoid this judgment. But let my people go. Let my son go. And yet time and time again, Pharaoh ha has refused that. And so ultimately this judgment comes. So it's a judgment which, which is fair, which is pre-warned, which is appropriate to the situation. It doesn't stop it being a, a judgment which is it's kind of brutal and, and hard to read about. Uh, but it is this judgment that ultimately brings rescue to God's people, which finally uh, breaks Pharaoh's resistance uh, and sees God's people free. Uh, and so there's tons of stuff in this passage. We could uh, talk about it for kind of weeks and weeks. Um, we're not going to do that, don't worry. Um, we're just kind of going through Exodus, looking at the big picture, trying to get the big ideas. And, and the big idea in this is really how is this rescue of God's people achieved? And the answer is this, that it comes through blood. It's a rescue through blood. And so you might have kind of thought there's some strange bits as you, as Charity was reading through there. There's this uh, sort of command where the people are to take a lamb and they're to kill the lamb uh, and they're to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and across the, the lintel of their door. It's kind of gruesome. I don't think you got vegetarians back then, which is fine, but it's all a bit kind of grim and messy, isn't it? And what's the result of that? Well, verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you. And what happens is this, that the people are rescued by this blood of the lamb on the doorposts. They're, they're spared the judgment which comes and instead they receive this great rescue. And I get, you know, this kind of sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? It sounds like it's something uh, a million miles away. It sounds uh, completely bizarre. You know, why would God ask them to do that? What's the point? And actually, the, the point is, and this is a kind of a, a huge idea uh, throughout the Bible, a massive theme that, that runs right throughout the Bible, the point is this idea of substitution. Substitution. That the key, I suppose, to understand there is again, we, we read it in verse 30 there was not a house where someone was not dead. And actually, that's true. It's not that death didn't come to the Israelites, it's that the, the lamb died instead. And that's what this blood on the doorpost is all about. It's a sign, not just a sign of where God's people happen to live, okay, we'll avoid that house and that house, but actually, it's a sign that there has been a death there. The death of the lamb. 
And so death does not come to those inside the house. The people are spared. The people are rescued by the blood. And why is that significant? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, it helps us to see that um, why were God's people, the Israelites, saved? It never did anything wrong and they didn't deserve judgment. But actually, it was because another had died in their place. God provided this way for his judgment to fall elsewhere. And so the lamb dies instead of the people. The blood on the doorpost, the blood on the lintel is the sign that this lamb has died for them. And this is huge in our, in our understanding of the Bible. We said right from the beginning, why are we looking at the book of Exodus? Well, we're looking at it because it gives us, uh, amongst other things, it gives us like a, a scale model of the gospel. And so we're not just looking at a piece of history. We're not just looking at something that, that happened a long time ago and is an, an interesting story, but we're looking at the pattern of how God rescues his people. And the lesson from this section, the, what we see in this pattern is that God rescues his people through the substitutionary death of a spotless lamb. And that is absolutely huge in the Bible. Really, this kind of passage, this section, kicks off what's known as the, uh, the, the sacrificial um, system in the Old Testament, the, the part of the Bible written before Jesus, uh, where the priests would offer animals and sacrifices uh, instead of, um, in place of the sins of the people. And yet even those were there, ultimately, to point forwards to the fulfillment of all of that. And we find that in, in the New Testament. We find that in the part of the Bible that once Jesus has arrived on the scene. Preparing for Jesus is a guy called John the Baptist. Uh, he's sent to prepare people for this rescue that God was bringing. One of the first things that we read about John the Baptist is that he sees Jesus coming towards him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John knows what he's talking about. John knows what that's going to make the people think about. He's saying, look, here is the true Passover lamb. Here is what all of this uh, is pointing towards. And, and the climax of that comes as Jesus dies on the cross, as Jesus' blood is spilt. Why did that happen? Well, that is Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, dying in place of his people. That is Jesus taking the judgment that, that people deserve, that we all deserve, so that they instead can go free. And that's what a Christian is. That's the heart of Christianity. It's not that Christians are, are better than other people, but it's that Christians are, are people who accept that substitution where Jesus dies in our place to rescue us. And question, I suppose, then comes, well, rescue us from what? You know, our situation is not uh, slavery in Egypt. What is it that God rescues us from? Well, the, the Bible says that our situation is still slavery, uh, not to another nation, not to another a kind of king or, or superpower, but it is slavery to sin. And the sin really is that kind of mindset or that, that attitude, which instead of putting God's first, puts, puts ourselves first or puts anything else in God's place. And it includes all the kind of actions that, that flow from that mindset. And I think the fascinating thing is that really the, that the world says that, you know, putting yourself first, you know, prioritizing your own needs, you know, going and get, getting what you want, you know, the world calls that freedom, doesn't it? That's what we're to strive after. That's what's looked up to. It's something to, to chase after. And yet the Bible says, actually, that is a form of slavery. Bible says that these things, whatever we kind of put as number one, that becomes our master. 
And so we end up constantly trying to uh, work for and try and find our value in things that can't really satisfy. We end up constantly in uh, destructive patterns of behavior that we can't shift. Uh, we end up not free to be all that we were designed to be in, in a relationship with the God who made us. And ultimately, and most seriously, we find that we're not right with God. We've rejected him and we deserve this punishment, this judgment. And yet through Jesus' sacrifice, through the, the true lamb, then we are freed from that. That is the, that rescue, freed from serving sin, freed from being liable to that judgment, freed from having sin as our master, ultimately to be free to serve God. And so back to Exodus, this, this dying lamb, this blood on wooden beams uh, is an incredibly vivid picture of the gospel. It is a vivid picture of how God rescues us to be his people. It is a, is a picture of the cross where Jesus dies that his children might live. And so this is how God rescues. It's such a, a central uh, section in Exodus and throughout the whole Bible. It's, it's the gospel. It is what for Christians transforms their, their relationship with God. That, that relationship is restored through this substitutionary death of Jesus. And yet it's also something that uh, transforms our, our whole outlook on the world, our whole uh, view of life. It, it changes us as a people uh, in, in countless ways. Let me just sort of mention two. Uh, number one, if, if this is true and if we accept that, then it has to be incredibly humbling. If this is the defining aspect of what it means to be a Christian, and it is, well, then it means that there can't be any space, can there, for, for, for pride, for arrogance. Uh, so often the, that kind of accusation leveled against Christianity or the, or the church is that, you know, they're arrogant. Or they think they're better than everyone else. They're, you know, who are you to say that you're better than me? Um, maybe some Christians do act like that. Uh, but actually, that the gospel should be like a kind of a, a heat-seeking missile that, that destroys any trace of arrogance or pride. Because being a Christian isn't about what we've done. It's about completely depending on someone else, completely depending on Jesus' death. It gets rid of any sense of, of pride or arrogance that we might tend towards. It gets rid of this idea of a, a kind of us and them. You know, the church is always... And always will be full of, of flawed people, of helpless people. And it's only as we remember that that we're able to be this kind of welcoming community that we, that we talk about and that we strive to be. Because we're not saying to people, you know, do this and this and this, and then you could come and join us on a Sunday if you want. No, we say to people, look, you know, come and join us wherever you are. Uh, come and join us whatever you're like, wherever you're at. Let us tell you about this rescue that we've found. Let us share with you this rescue that, that we need. Let us rejoice together about this rescue that is offered to you as well. And so number one, it's something that really humbles us, this, this gospel message, this idea of, of Jesus dying in our place. But, but number two, it, it comforts us, it encourages us, it gives us security. You know, we live in a world which is dominated by this idea of having to prove yourself. You're having to show you're your worth it, whether that's through a success at work, whether that's through what you look like, whether that's through how kind of functional your family is or, or well-behaved your children are. You know, even in Christian circles, we can feel that pressure. You know, how good a Christian am I? Am I doing all the right stuff? You know, how much faith do people kind of think I have? What are my prayers like? 
Actually, again, this is such a great encouragement because none of those things are what define God's people. They're defined by what God has done. We don't need to prove ourselves, either through worldly criteria or, or religious performance. There is the comfort of relying on that sacrifice that Jesus has made and that nothing can change and that nothing can take away. I spent a while in my school years playing rugby. If you've ever, uh, if you've watched any of the Six Nations or ever, I suppose, even just seen a rugby player, uh, you'll probably notice that they don't look like me. Um, I'm kind of not the ideal rugby build, um, but I was desperate that I was going to play rugby and I was going to be good at rugby. So I had to kind of try extra hard to, to prove myself, uh, try extra hard to kind of cover up the fact I was basically quite small and weedy uh, compared to everyone else. And, um, it, you know, it happened for a while. I gave my best, and I did all I could. And uh, then there was kind of a series of three games. I got concussed twice and then knocked out in the third one. And I just sort of thought, you know what? This isn't, this isn't for me. You know, this, is, this isn't my sport. Um, but we can kind of try and take that attitude into our lives, can't we? That I have to prove myself. It's exhausting. You know, I have to make it, I know that I'm kind of weak over here, but if I, if I try better here, you know, then I'll kind of prove that I'm supposed to be here. I deserve to be here. It wears us out. You know, if we, if we take that attitude in life, we'll end up being kind of battered and bruised and, and giving in. And yet I hope we see that through this great message of the rescue through Jesus, his death in our place, there's that encouragement that, that we don't need to, to make up for our weaknesses. We can't. All that is needed, all that is required, all our hope is based on that simple acceptance of Jesus. Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, dying in our place. And that is how much God loves us. And that is something that nothing can change or, or take away. So we're humbled by this. But also we're encouraged, we're, we're comforted, we're given great security by this. Okay, so there you go. It's a, that was the first thing we're going to talk about. Uh, it's a rescue, and we've spoken about that for a while because it's a really kind of big deal, uh, both in Exodus and throughout the Bible. It's this rescue by the idea of the lamb who dies in the place of the people. It's a huge theme when through the Bible, a huge theme we can kind of trace back to this point here, a really big deal in this passage. Uh, and yet the other thing, and we'll be quicker with this, the other thing that we, we see kind of weaved through these chapters is that this rescue is not like a, a kind of a, a one-hit wonder, but it's a rescue to be remembered. And so you'll have seen, as, as we we're kind of reading through it, all those details about how they're to remember this rescue in future. And so we're going to look at now at this idea of remembering. Uh, it's kind of fascinating in the passage, even before the rescue takes place, even as it's being announced, um, the Lord tells Moses and Aaron about this celebration, the, the feast of the Passover. He tells them all these kind of details of dates, you know, the, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, uh, the type of herbs they're going to use with it. Uh, it's incredibly kind of minute detail. That's what the first uh, 20 verses of chapter 12 are all about. The details are for, for how generations to come, people are going to kind of rehearse and replay and remember what's happened here at the Exodus. Verse 2 of chapter 12, it's going to be the start of their, their whole new year. Their whole calendar is going to be changed to help them remember and recognize the significance of what's happening here. And then we see it again. Moses, uh, in verses 21 to 23, kind of sends the people out to get ready for this momentous, uh, you know, probably fairly terrifying night. 
And then verse 4, verse 24, sorry, he's straight back at it again, telling them, you'll observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. This idea of remembrance of this kind of ceremony, this meal, this celebration they're going to set up is, is kind of woven throughout this passage. I wonder if you can imagine the people's response. Okay, Moses, let's just maybe get this evening sorted out first, shall we? You've just been telling us about this destroyer who is hopefully not, we, we trust, going to enter our homes. But, you know, we're feeling a bit on edge here. And maybe let's get tonight out of the way. And then we could start making plans for next year after that, you know, once we're out of Egypt. And yet that is not an option. Because this idea of remembrance and this rescue are, are so tightly tied together that they cannot be separated. And this rescue is so significant that it's what's going to define these people's future. And if they ever lose sight of that, if they ever forget to remember that, they're going to lose their, their whole identity. They're going to forget who they are as God's people. And so there's built in this visible, tangible, graphic way of ensuring that the people remember this feast that they'll celebrate. And again, this has got such incredible uh, significance and relevance to us as a church. Uh, and so just as throughout the, the Old Testament, the people looked back to, to Exodus and, and celebrated what God had done for them through the, through the Passover meal, well, well, so the church is to constantly look back to our great rescue. It's to look back to the cross, to remember and celebrate what God has done for us, to, to be constantly shaped by that truth. And that's really what we, we come to do each week at church, we have festivals kind of during the year, but ultimately, that's what we do on a weekly basis. Where we come together, not kind of primarily to learn sort of new facts from the book of Exodus or any other book, uh, not ultimately to kind of catch up with friends and chat to each other, but, but kind of through those things and over and above those things to be reminded of the cross, to remind ourselves of the gospel, of that great rescue that, that defines who we are and changes our whole life going forward. And just like the Passover, well, we too are given this special meal to, to celebrate and remember this rescue as we share communion together. We're going to do that in a couple of minutes. In fact, Jesus' Last Supper, which we kind of replicate at communion, that was, in fact, the, the, the Passover meal, which he was sharing with his disciples. And yet Jesus fulfills that meaning of the Passover. Do this in remembrance, Jesus says, of me. We're no longer looking back to Egypt. We're no longer looking back to the lamb with his blood on the doorpost. We're looking back to Jesus. Jesus says, remember the cross. It's Jesus' life, it's his death, it's his cross, it's his resurrection that we remember. And we're given the means of doing that. We do that sometimes formally, through communion at church. We do that weekly through kind of gathering together, as we've said, to, to kind of look at the Bible and how it all points to Jesus. We do that kind of day by day. God brings us into a community of, of his people to encourage each other, to love each other, ultimately to, to be constantly pointing each other back what Jesus has done for us. Constantly reminding ourselves of the cross, that, that rescue that defines God's people. And as we do that, it's really important, I think, again looking back at Exodus, again looking at the Passover, it's really important to recognize that in that there's this huge emphasis on children, on passing this on to the next generation. Children are such a part of this celebration. 
Uh, it's almost designed to provoke them slightly. Verse 26, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Well, the idea is it then gives this concrete opportunity for, for parents to speak to their children and other children about what God has done, about the rescue he's carried, on, he's carried out. And so for us as a church, that means, you know, so much of what we want to do is, is share the good news of this rescue with those around us, with people, um, other people in our community. But also a big focus has to be on, on helping our, our children to understand and remember this rescue that Jesus has done. That the idea behind what we do together kind of at the start of, of the service um, with the kind of, you know, kind of get kids to, to remember stuff. Well, that, that's, that's the point of that. It's hopefully pick something that, that people can kind of take home and, and discuss as families to help children remember, to pass on this good news from generation to generation. That's the point of what happens next door in, in kids' church. It's not just kind of there to entertain or as a, a babysitting service, but to, but to teach these guys about the cross from their earliest, earliest years. It's why in just a couple of minutes we're going to welcome the children back into the kind of the back of the room as we celebrate communion together. Uh, it will be a lot easier for their teachers just to kind of keep them out for another five minutes and kind of do a game or something. And yet hopefully we want these young lives to be prompted to ask these same questions. What do you mean by this service? What's going on here? What's this all about? And that great opportunity for us to be able to say, well, we're celebrating how God has rescued us through Jesus. Because we are his people, and that is what defines us. And so it's something we want our, our children to know and remember. It's something we want our, our community to know and remember. It's something that we all need to constantly come back to, to know and remember. Because just as the, the Passover this great rescue was a, a rescue to be remembered, a defining moment of salvation for the people of Israel. Well, well so the cross is the defining moment for God's people now. Uh, we celebrate Jesus. Uh, we celebrate the Lamb who was slain. And through his blood, we are saved. Uh, a rescue to be remembered. Let me, let me pray.